Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. Hello, Regenerates. In today's episode, we have Sean Conway, founder of Ixo Protocol. Uh, Sean and I have been um, working on parallel paths for, for several years, um, and I've had the pleasure to get to, to know Sean and be working towards deeper collaboration with Ixo Protocol, which is a, a kindred spirit to Regen Network in creating decentralized protocol-based solutions for, um, in Ixo's case, what they call the impact economy. That is um, being able to verify, uh, measure, verify, quantify impact of various sorts, whether they be social or, or environmental. And um, he's done a lot of great work on impact bonds and um, other payments for, for various uh, types of impact, as I'm saying. So I hope you enjoy this episode. We get deep into sort of geeky crypto land, and I think you start to get a sense of the the building blocks of a more democratized uh, digital infrastructure for social coordination and for measuring what matters and um, valuing that um, in a flexible, dynamic, and citizen-driven way that is not imposed by top-down technocrats. And I think both Sean and I are very passionate about that element of things, that uh, the reason why we pour such enormous amounts of time and effort and thinking and um, engineering work into decentralized systems is because we want uh, an open source decentralized systems is because we want those tools available for citizens to balance between the public and corporate sectors and um, be able to govern their commons, um, value uh, natural capital, living capital, um, and and d- imagine the, the future scenario, the future state that people would like to cooperate to achieve and then work towards that in, in measurable ways and make agreements about that. So Sean is a really brilliant thinker. I respect him very much. I hope you enjoy this episode with him. Um, he's also uh, a public health professional, and so um, I, I appreciated getting at least a small glimmer of his thinking about uh, what's going on with, with COVID-19 and, and how that parallels the, the deeper work that's, that's needed. Uh, in today today's day and age. So enjoy this episode of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast um, with Sean Conway of Ixo Foundation. How are things there in Cape Town? What's it what's it like uh, in the era of COVID-19 in South Africa? So um, Cape Town is the hotspot within South Africa and we're just going into winter. And uh, so we are, we're at this um, pivotal point of, of unlocking um, for the sake of the economy. And I think that that's the story we're seeing kind of happening um, unfold in many places in the world. Uh, but unlike, uh, I think like in the North where you're going into summer and in many places, it seems like uh, the spread of the virus has in a way sort of burnt out or is burning out um, we're we're really just going into it now and we have 
um, socioeconomic conditions here, like overcrowded housing, um, and uh, people don't really have the resources to do those luxurious things like social distance. Right. And so, uh, so we are really facing um, an escalation in the number of cases and a realization that there's absolutely no way that we will be able to deal with the fallout. And so lots of people are going to die. Um, I think in, in total in the country, we have something like 3,000 ventilators, you know, and that's it's a pittance. Uh, it's across the whole country. Um, so uh, the hospitals are already starting to fill up. So I think, I think that in short, we're seeing kind of a, uh, yeah, we're, we're seeing a big a disaster. A, disaster. a humanitarian yeah. disaster happening, unfolding in slow motion, basically. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of, it's, it's like a, a slow burn. I mean, I had the experience, this year has been kind of crazy. I had the experience of the, the mountain just behind my house here um, burning. And uh, we had gale force winds. And, you know, you kind of have to stand back and just watch it burn because um, you can't control the fire itself. You can really just try to create controls around the fire. Yeah. And so it was scary. We kind of almost, we had to evacuate and so on. And, um, uh, and I know that that's been a similar kind of pattern in places like like California. Uh, so, yeah, the extent to which we uh, consciously observe what's happening and kind of look at uh, what we can do and what we can't do, I think is really going to become quite a big story of, <clears throat> of the next phases of our lives as we see uh, things unfolding, uh, some of which we can do something about and a lot of which we can't. Um, and we know that in some ways, we you know we've contributed to those disasters. Um, so there's, there's, I guess, uh, going to be emergency responses like we're seeing with COVID. And a lot of that is caught up in politics and uh, leaders wanting to, first and foremost, protect their political positions uh, rather than necessarily look at the public good. Um, so you have the political responses, which are emergency responses and kind of popularist responses. Uh, then we will have um, a bunch of people kind of just saying, well, they, there's nothing we can do. Let's just have some sort of nihilistic responses, which is the worst kind of scenario if we give up hope. Um, and then the third path, I guess, is you know, trying to really be smart about what we can do with the tools that we have and the, and the resources and capabilities that we have. And I don't think that we've nearly even started to scratch the surface of those capabilities and those tools. Uh, we have been sort of boiled frogs um, and uh, the water's been nice and warm and so on. And now it's now we're, now we're in, the, you know, in the boiling water uh, and we have all these tools, but we're not using them. So that's, I guess, where, from a technology perspective, um, when we think about technologies, not only from the digital technology perspective, but also uh, social technologies, economic financing technologies, you know, sort of a plurality of technologies. We, we've got so many things available, and it's about now how we configure, deploy, scale, and kind of really create a seismic shift in um, how we use these capabilities. And, uh, you know, I don't think that it's um, in any way coincidental that we are at a point in the 
history of humanity where we've got very, very powerful um, you know, digital tools, for instance, and data tools. You know, why is it that we're suddenly kind of over the past five years seeing this convergence of uh, AI, blockchain, uh, IoT, uh, 5G networks, etc. Uh, these are really powerful technologies that are taking our capabilities to potentially to kind of next levels. And um, it's not coincidental that we suddenly have all these capabilities. I think that it's part of kind of what's meant to be. And now we we need to harness those tools and make sure that we use them um, for what needs to happen next. Yeah, <clears throat> agreed. It's a, it, and I'm, I'm really excited to get in. I mean, there's a couple of different uh, branching patterns that I'm interested, branches rather, that I think are kind of fractal in nature. So we'll, we'll end up in a way having the same conversation no matter which branch we choose to go down. Um, so I'm really excited. I, I mean, just to frame out what I'm, I'm excited to, to chat with you about, um, get your take on, uh, share with listeners. Um, there, there's, there's sort of a number of different levels. One is I'm really, you know, excited to get the update from you about the great work that you've been doing with block science and Ixo, um, led by Ixo and, you know, bonding curves, bring that into the Cosmos ecosystem. And just more broadly, you know, like, what does that enable and what does that like, like why, and what are the use cases and kind of just get your perspective about that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm also keen to sort of keep some of the conversation in, you know, as we've started with in this sort of like present existential crisis that we find ourselves in. And, you know, you're, you're a medical doctor, you're a public health professional, um, you're a technologist. Um, I think, you know, I've been thinking a lot, you know, what does Sean have to say about this? What's his perspective about what's what's unfolding because i think you have sort of like a very unique vantage point and i think there's a lot of static and there's a lot of noise out there and there's not a lot of signal of just sort of compassionate clear thinking whole systems perspectives about as you said what can we do what can't we do where are places that we do need to push that sort of innovation and we need to do it quickly and where are places where we may just need to rely on good old fashioned, whatever it is, you know, uh, border checkpoints and, you know, <laughs> I don't know, like, like there's just so many. And, and, and as you were saying, there's all these tools. I, I hear people, I hear people tend to fall into whatever their habitual sort of thing is like either people are like, everything's going to be great and we just got to open up the economy and it'll be fine. Or people are like, oh my God, the world's going to end and we already knew that and this is just the evidence. Or, you know, people, anyway, people tend to sort of like, I I've been noticing, sort of fall into their, their habitual space. And, uh, and I think it's a unique moment to not do that, to sort of like ask a different set of questions that give us different sets of answers. And so I'm just really, I'm really keen to just kind of like get your, your sort of take on what's happening and, 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 and how we can approach this in a way, you know, maybe framed, I think most of um, my listeners at the moment are um, within the, there's a, there's a strong, sort of center around the cosmos community but and then there's also sort of the other communities that 
sort of I interact with climate movement and, you know, um, people engaged in um, entrepreneurship, uh, so, sort of social, e ecological entrepreneurship, right? So, um, so like speaking to us, like your tribe, you're part of that community, what can, you know, just like, how do we make sense of this? And what are things we can and can't do? And, um, and in a way, you know, what do you think this, this uh, moment I don't know. I mean, I, I am also just holding it loosely. I'm interested in your perspective and maybe doing some exploration around what is the world that's, that's emerging out of this, you know, and, you know, holding it loosely and probabilistically, like not saying this is, you know, we're not, we don't need to be Nostradamus here, but, you know, what is emerging out of this? What is this forcing? What are, what are the forcing functions taking place here? So anyway, that was a long, bit of context setting but um you know hopefully that's useful to just ground in in this first phase of what what i would just really love as i was noting is your take on everything as a you know public health professional doctor and technologist yeah so that's a big space and uh, and uh, uh, let's see what we can cover so um it, i have from my professional uh, interests, uh, I guess, maybe pre-professional as a kid, was really interested in um, health and um, medicine, and you know that's why I became a doctor. Um, but I was particularly interested from the perspective of, I guess, social ills. Uh, so not necessarily just uh, at a an individual um, uh, kind of person level, but you know, I grew up in apartheid South Africa, and it was really hard to see you know, if you just were a bit conscious and and asked questions which i tended to do a lot of um you know ask why why are things the way they are and you know, why are people de um, deprived and wh why are we seeing these kinds of social reactions we had you know, we had terrorism uh, so-called terrorism um, which was the resistance movement and so we're thinking about this from a sort of social ills perspective um, and then learning about the kinds of uh, dynamics that lead to things such as epidemics or cancers and so on. I think there's some really <clears throat> important analogies, and I wouldn't even necessarily call them analogies because that diminishes the meaning. Uh, I would call them natural phenomena uh, that we in the same way as we've kind of, we kind of in the past have distanced ourselves as being separate from uh, from nature, but now we understand ourselves to be part of nature. That sort of narrative and that thinking, I think, is becoming a lot more um, main, uh, sort of uh, mainstream or um, predominant. Uh, I think that our understanding that we have these threats that arise through uh, combinations of factors like uncontrolled growth, you know, which is like cancerous, and and that can be at the level of an individual biologically, or it can be within a society uh, in terms of the economy or in terms of resource utilization and so on. And uh, so when you stress natural systems um, or subject them to uh, sort of carcinogenic, you know, uh, 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 types of exposures, let's call it, you know, that uh, threaten the well-being. Um, of the systems, then the systems are going to respond in ways that uh, are 
uh, kind of diseased. Um, so I, I use these analogies from a sort of healthcare perspective because I guess that's my worldview. But I think that they help to uh, explain things from a natural world perspective, which is important. Um, and that then allows us to think about the responses also in natural world terms. And so something that I, over the past couple of years, have been finally used in an, and as an analogy uh, to explain uh, what XO and these types of technologies are about is to um, refer to them as the digital immune system for humanity. Now, six months ago, that was quite a difficult thing to explain to people as an analogy or as a even a natural uh, kind of phenomenon uh, because people were less informed, you know, the general public less informed about what immunity is and you know, infection and vaccine and, um, and immune responses and so on. And uh, so with COVID, this has now become part of our um, language and we understand the, the uh, principles of um, Im immunity. And so I think it's a lot easier now to, ex to explain the analogy in the context of uh, social immunity or immunity for, immunity for humanity, and then how technologies can enable us to create a digital immune system for humanity. And so that's really uh, something I'm exploring in terms of, kind of how that resonates with people as, a, as an analogy, but also as an operating principle. And so if we can apply biomimetic um, principles of how the immune system works to how we respond in both sensing and acting, responding to threats in society, um, whether those are social, economic, or environmental, uh, I think that, that can be quite powerful. And uh, the connections between those analogies and some of the very specific components that we've been building are quite strong uh, because those components are built on those biomimetic kind of principles. So let me uh, just, this is fantastic. So, okay, so, so sort of point one, where we, we get to explore analogies that allow us to make better meaning out of what's happening and and you're sort of proposing that the immune system is a really fantastic analogy for the the new i guess sort of web three the, the digital the, the the digital tools that we might loosely refer to as web three that allow us to sort of uh bring mechanism design in so that we can automate certain social coordination functions in a somewhat democratic way, right? Um, okay, so that's really that's really fantastic and interesting. And I, I guess I the analogy I have most often heard used and used myself is actually more that that we're sort of building the nervous system, and a sort of autonomic nervous system. So what's the relationship there? What's the relationship between the autonomic nervous system and our our immune system and um, is that, um, like, does that expand and com complete or make more nuanced the analogy or, or is it better one than the other in di different circumstances? That, that would be kind of a really fa fascinating to get your take on. Yeah. So, um, so we tend to, uh, as associate intelligence with 
with the nervous system and with the brain. Uh, I guess just because that's how we have in our sort of very um, sort of human-centric kind of way um, put the seat of intelligence in the, in, as being in the brain and the nervous system. Uh, that centralized system certainly you know, is important for uh, cognitive processing and for autonomic responses and so on, um, but it's a centralized system, and so it's kind of command and control. And whether the command and control is, con is conscious command and control it, or, or unconscious autonomic, it is centralized con uh, command and control. And so within society, there are certain uh, processes which require command and control, uh, but I don't think that they're the processes alone, like just as the body has an immune system and, an, and, an, and a, um, um, a nervous system, I don't think that either of these things can operate in isolation. What's, I think, powerful about the immune system analogy and also the um, operating principles of the immune system is that there's an intelligence in that immune system, which is not the kind of cognitive intelligence that we're um, familiar with in uh, the nervous system, but it's, it's an intelligence that evolves. And so um, the immune system, when we're born, doesn't have any memory, doesn't have any, any competence. It's kind of naive and yet to, be, yet to become. Um, and it's only through exposures to antigens and so on that we start to build up immunity. And what we mean by build up immunity is essentially a, uh, it's an adaptive evolutionary process. And so we can promote some of those processes through immunizations, um, but a, most of it is, is built up through exposure. And so the intelligence that gets built into that system is it's kind of innate intelligence. And so you have immune cells that have memory and are able to reactivate very quickly and uh, amplify and, and replicate. Uh, in order to deal with threats as, as they are kind of re-encountered. Uh, the important part of this is that it can happen at a localized level and doesn't need some central command and control to make it happen. So if you have the ability to sense and respond at a localized level in a way that communicates with other systems and is able to amplify so that you get adequate responses, that is a far more um, effective way of dealing with threats uh, that are you know, kind of in the, that don't involve um, flight, or, fight or flight, you know. So the brain is really kind of like high level, are we going to stay around here and deal with this thing or are we going to run away? And if we deal with it, this is how we're going to deal with it. Whereas the immune system is, um, just gets on and does its thing. Um, and, uh, and so... Uh, you know, this intelligence is something that has that builds up during our lifetime, but it's also based on intelligence that has come from, you know, generations and generations of evolution that have made us as human beings, but also um, all living uh, living uh, creatures, um, uh, able to exist within um, environments that are otherwise very kind of hostile and threatening. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, so I think that's kind of where the analogy goes. I think in terms of um, meaning and why this is important, you know, there, there was someone who said uh, the greatest innovation is innovation of meaning. 
And um, so if we're able to think about what it means to have immunity within our society and what an immune system looks like, not only the digital immune system, I think it, you know, there's different components. You know? So the human immune system has got, it's, it's a number of different systems that all kind of work together. You've got the cellular system and you've got the humoral system, which is antibodies, and you've got um, various other uh, uh, communic- um, uh, signalers and so on. So it's a, it's a, whole, a whole complex system. And so uh, when we talk about building up immune systems, it's about kind of the, um, the, um, the ways that we organize ourselves, the tools that we use, um, the economy that we create, the information that we collect and store and utilize, the know, kind of know-how. It's all of these things together. Uh, now, we need some kind of organizing system for that. And this is where having a stateful um, graph, um, a, a kind of a, an intelligence that is embedded in an architecture of information that kind of solidifies the information in stateful ways so that we can act uh, with shared information. So we all act off of the same base of information. And if we can trust that information because it's verified and verifiable, then we can do things such as um, incentivize changes over time. So we can say the state today looks like this and we're all pretty kind of confident and we pretty much trust that it is like that because of the way that that state has been recorded. And our desirable future state should be whatever. And we have a... We have a framework of commitments for guiding that in the sustainable development goals, for instance. But we can really kind of make that much more granular and get down to very specific details around, you know, my company should be carbon neutral by, um, you know, in, in five years' time. We can create a uh, an intentional future state and then program our activities, whether they're economic activities or other uh but, you know, business activities and so on towards reaching that future state and we can incentivize it. So this brings in the kind of whole notion of programmability and the configuration spaces around programmability, um, which then leads into kind of where we're at with uh, mechanisms, uh, crypto economic mechanisms, which are essentially mechanisms, uh, essentially it's economy, which is based on stateful data. That's really what crypto economic mechanisms are. And uh, the leaders in this field, um, uh, Michael Zargam and, um, and the, um, uh, the research team um, in uh, Vienna, the Vienna School of um, Economics, uh, even are kind of saying, we don't need to call this crypto economics. This is just economics. It's but just it's economics. The, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Dec- no, I mean, Rick says that all the time. Rick Dudley, our mutual friend, he's always like, what are you guys talking yeah. about? It's just mechanisms and it's just economics. It's, you know, it's not something, something magical doesn't happen when you apply crypto- cryptography to, you know, yeah, and e- e- doing economic analysis and uh, design work. So I think yeah. that's- Yeah, so what does change, what does change is, yeah, what does change is that the mechanisms can utilize um, a shared state so information that is solidified in a specific way and that can also then be, um, as I said, programmed towards future states. 
So you can have a lot more um, control over how economic patterns emerge or how economic processes play out. Well, just to be like, let's be way. really, let's be really clear about that because I, I think you can achieve the same thing without cryptography, but you can't achieve that without cryptography in a way that creates sort of a multi-stakeholder system in which actors who don't intrinsically have a social trust with one another can trust the protocol instead of trusting each other. And that's what's key. It, it, instead of this being a centralized command and control system where there's social control over the apparatus, cryptography unlocks yeah. the ability for this to be decentralized and for people to sort of co-generate and co-own this graph of stateful data and, and co-create the mechanisms that rely on that stateful data exactly. to create exchange um, sort of parameters with one another. So, it, so cryptography is revolutionary, but what it doesn't do is, like, like almost everything is possible without it, but cryptography creates the opportunity for this to be co-generated, co-created and decentralized, right? Instead of just sort of, you know, Facebook is doing this <laughs> for us yeah. or whatever. Yeah, and, and so in a way it's counterintuitive because uh, a lot of cryptography and particularly kind of blockchain technologies are um, kind of trumpet in anonymity and um, abstraction. And, uh, but I would say that these technologies actually enable us to put humans in the loop much more than other technologies do. And Agreed. a very practical example <laughs> of that would be the work you know, the work that the work that we're doing um, on uh, education uh, impact bonds in India, and um, uh, so I can't say too much about about the clients and things like that because they can't, they're you know, just it's banks. <laughs> they don't like they don't like uh, uh, they don't like us talking about them too much. Um, but it's really interesting work. And the um, uh, so the old system that the uh, results-based financing mechanism of a development impact bond uh, generates a contract. So this is a financial mechanism um, or instrument that uh, generates a mode of cooperation which is dictated by a contract and that contract sits at the level of some person in an organization. So I'm talking from first-hand experience of going to India and speaking to the great organization, you know, the great NGO that's doing um, educational interventions for uh, you know, tens of thousands of uh, primary school kids. And when you speak to anybody other than the CEO and the, and the finance director, uh, and you ask them kind of like, so what is it that this program is about? What is the incentivization that has been created? Because it's a results-based financing mechanism. Um, and so there are built-in incentives for achieving the results and you ask anyone other than the person who signed the contract and they, they have no idea. They kind of go, yeah, it's like, it, it's this, it's whatever, it's this results based thing, it's a bond, but it doesn't actually impact them directly. They have no direct say. They just know they need to do a good job um, because they will be told by the CEO, you need to do a good job otherwise we don't get paid. Um, and so that's not a very human in the loop uh, kind of way of, of doing this. And it's also very not a very economy, um, economy in the it is very, very bureaucratic and it's very, it's, 
it's, um, it's very opaque and it's very non-inclusive and it doesn't transfer rights and it doesn't tap into the intelligence of the people who are actually doing the work. Um, so the design that, we, um, that we, we've been engineering together with block science uh, completely flips that model on its head. And um, the cool thing is that this is um, finally achieving after 12, 13 years, um, an idea that, that I had um, in 2008, the last big economic crisis, um, which was to create a mechanism where um, all of these stakeholders become what I called share stakeholders. I'd mm -hmm. possibly change that terminology now, um, where you've got, kind of got economic skin in the game, but your um, opinion about whether the system is going to work or not, whether the project's going to succeed or not, actually carries some economic weight and it carries some economic reward if, if you're right at predicting what the outcome is going to be. And so, uh, you know, that, that, that was a kind of crazy idea 12, 13 years ago, pre-blockchain. And finally, we've been working through um, this design of um, what started off as being um, um, a risk-adjusted bonding curve. And we can go into what bonding curves are and why, why they're important. Um, so really kind of pushing the um, frontier of the concept of bonding curves by saying that uh, bonding curves shouldn't be static uh, because the world isn't static. You know? So particularly, you know, if you've got a bonding curve linked to some kind of real world process, with real-world outcomes and real-world influences and agent behaviors and all of that, that bonding curve needs to be adaptive. And so there needs to be a cyber-physical interface. And that should be one in which information from the physical world is incorporated into the cyber world such that you can have adjustments taking place. Uh, and and there's, some, you know, there's great analogies you know, for how that works and how that doesn't work when you just look at you know boston robotics over the past two or three years i remember seeing a boston robotics uh youtube video um, with a very clunky looking robot that was all wired up and was kind of bal you know, balancing over and tripping over things um three years later you've got these robots that are doing somersaults and uh, amazing feats that we can't even do you know as as um as humans um, and so that evolution has happened because of the ability to link the um, informational inputs, the signals that come in from the physical world to what's happening in the cyber world, which is the, in this case, the robot, which has got a whole bunch of control mechanisms and so on that will bound that, that cyber system to being able to do certain things. But the better we get at linking those two things together, whether we, don't, we, we have a self-driving car or we've got a robot, or we've got these new financing mechanisms, um, these um, uh, economic, decentralized economic um, kind of uh, programmability um, mechanisms, then we can achieve much greater precision and much greater kind of adaptability. And so um, the expectation is that we have much better uh, results. Um, and so, um, so that's kind of where we were going was with the idea of a risk-adjusted bonding curve and really kind of to 
demystify and simplify that. And we, we can talk about why bonding curves, but you know, a bonding curve, particularly in the case of any sort of natural process, um, and I would include most kind of development projects as being natural world kind of processes, tend to have um, a logistical curve, you know, kind of S-shaped curve type dynamics. You know, if you had to ask somebody, and what, what do you expect this project's gonna look like, whether it's installing solar panels or planting trees or uh, immunizing children, you know, it kind of starts off slow and then, and then it ramps up as the whole project gets going and then it usually has a bit of a kind of tail off towards the end. And so people can wave their hands around and say, well, yeah, it probably looks something like this. And so, you know, that's something we can represent um, algorithmically, uh, you know, as an equation. And so we've got a sigmoidal uh, logistic curve equa equation. But that equation is not, that curve is not static. You know, as these processes play out over time, the circumstances change and things happen in the complex world. And so um, a lot of that uh, then gets translated as risk, um, which is either internalized or externalized. And particularly if it's externalized, then that risk doesn't just disappear, it goes somewhere else and somebody else has to take the risk. And so what we can do by risk adjusting these cyber physical mechanisms is incorporate a lot more of the risk um, internal to the system and then manage it internally with, you know, within the system. So as an example, you know, the traditional mechanism for implementing an impact bond would um, externalize a risk such as the, the project is not going very well because um, because the government is not cooperating and providing access to schools. Um, so the, you know, the project falls behind its milestones and the funders come in and they say, right, well, we're, we're, we're gonna, in terms of the um, conditions of the agreement, we're gonna cut this project. So we're not gonna continue. So the externalities uh, uh, that happen in that case, you know, is the whole bunch of um, you know, job losses, um, uh, opportunity cost losses for the children who aren't getting that additional support, um, all the wasted resources that have gone into setting this thing up and then it didn't actually have an opportunity to work. You know, you can kind of see where I'm going with this. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> if you've got a way of creating a feedback loop that internalizes those, um, those risks of uh, poor performance or less than expected performance, the system is able to adapt much more um, precisely and quickly and in a much more adaptive way. So we can hopefully end up with far less of this kind of externalization. You can, you can turn a project around, you can um, find things that work. And you know, I think whether we're looking at this in the context of an individual project, or we're looking at it in the context of a whole range of different interventions within a complex world, and a, a good example there you know, kind of currently is kind of what are we doing about COVID? Well, we don't know any one thing that will solve the problem. And so we have all of these different initiatives. Now, if we're able to more effectively internalize the information that comes or use the information that comes to, to, um, uh, to scale up what's working and very quickly identify what's not working, we then get to have much more um, precise, effective, efficient, and um, quicker uh, res responses at work. Um, but instead, what we're doing is kind of, uh, it's a politically driven big, big initiatives, um, which are not 
proven art because essentially nothing in development uh, or in, in, so, in the sort of social um, context uh, is proven, even if it's been done before. It's always a, a new set of actors, a new set of contexts, and so on. And so, essentially, all of these things are startups and trying to um, prove themselves. And so, but what you what you get is uh, kind of political backing for big initiatives, and people will just drive it until it works or until it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, it has huge externalities. Uh, and 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 this is a typical way that our nervous system driven approaches kind of work: command and control. And you either kind of get, go in there and fight it, or if it's not working, you flight it. Um, whereas uh, really what we need is bottom-up adaptive learning and very quickly kind of iterating and finding what works and what doesn't work. Um, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't bring the whole system down because it's not one of those too big to fail kind of things. It rather just is, um, it, it allows for pruning and 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 evolution uh, and so when you apply that kind of thinking um, you know to pretty much most of the big important uh, also expensive initiatives you know, such as the impact bond in India you know so if you're going to put tens of millions of dollars into a program but it's put it's for hundreds of thousands of children that program becomes too big to fail and it becomes very difficult to adapt and learn and and, and shift things around. Um, so rather let's um, unitize it, let's decentralize it, let's make it more um, small, but, uh, but with the potential to scale through replication of small units. So let's rather have 200 of those bonds um, for financing these interventions and uh, 1,000 children for each of them rather than one huge bond for 200,000 children. You see right. where, I'm, where I'm going with this. Yeah, no, that uh, makes a lot of yeah. sense. And I think it, um, well, I mean, in just to parse, there's a, a few layers. One of the things you, you were noting is, you know, in today's world, most of the, um, the, the decision-making apparatus for funding and response, even emergency response to something like COVID is almost ubiquitously political, <clears throat> um, yeah. which may be, part of the failure of sort of, you know, in quotes, the Western democracy's uh, response to, to COVID is, is just the, yeah, the, the, the bureaucratic maze and the, the multiple layers of political interests that may tend to shunt money to, you know, to something that they have an interest in or, or you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so what you're talking about is, I think the, the base layer here is really, and, and what we have to achieve in order for, then down the line for these sort of smaller bespoke um, integrated mechanisms, uh, this sort of risk adjusted bonding curve to be deployed for, for the small community that you know has, has this specific set of issues. Um, all of those still need this sort of integrated social uh, or integrated uh, data graph. It's sort of, there, there needs to be sort of an integration, this sort of heterogeneous but interoperable network that 
that sort of unifies everything. So maybe there's sort of like, maybe this is where we start to approach some semblance of, uh, of a connection between the analogy between the autonomic nervous system and the immune system, for instance, which is, I, I mean, I, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure I would um, immediately agree. Although I think it's a, a point well made. I'm not sure I would immediately agree with the idea that the autonomic nervous system is sort of completely analogous with a command and control in sort of like the human political sense, you know, um, but there's unification in the, in the nervous system, right? Between your, your brain and your spinal column and the rest of your nervous system, it's a unified sort of singular thing. And, mm -hmm. and, and in order for a thousand um, risk adjusted bonding curves to be deployed for a thousand individuals in order to sort of like meet the aggregate demand for you know, social impact, uh, there does need to be an integrated and unified um, stateful graph that they're all um, connected to, right? So they're, so, so um, does that hold, to, does that resonate with you? <clears throat> and is my statement about that feel accurate? Yeah, so let me first deal with the statement and then, and then I think, and then I, so, I think the thing that unifies everything is um, is the DNA. You know, so whether you're talking about an immune system or a nervous system, the cells of those systems all share the same DNA, uh, which is the stateful uh, um, information that gets utilized and is the basis for um, building um, you know, bu building uh, systems and operating those systems. Um, whether it's producing antibodies or responding to antibodies and things like that. So uh, in terms of uh, um, extended metaphors, um, <laughs> so uh, I forgot the second part of, of what, what we were saying there. So, so, so yeah, so, but in, term, in, terms, in terms of those analogies, I think that it's, um, it's useful to, uh, to look at what is shared between the systems, uh, which is the DNA. And then if we look at the graph, which is you know, our kind of digital representation, either almost kind of directly in a digital twin kind of sense or just in an um, analogous kind of sense, uh, that graph um, is what should enable us to run different systems. And so, you know, even if you're um, utilizing the, the system, the digital system, to do sensing and communicating of information in a sort of nervous system kind of way, you know, like passing the information along um, up to some decision-making uh, mechanism and then receiving back down the decisions and then acting on those decisions. That's, I mean, essentially, that's really what a nervous system is doing in terms of sensing and responding. It's... Uh, it's receiving information, processing, making a decision, and then and then actuating that decision through a through a signal that says go and you know, go and do this. Uh, and so those systems actually work together very tightly. I mean they're 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 in harmony with each other. Uh, so I don't think that it it's necessarily from an analogy perspective one or the other. Uh, I think what is important in terms of what we're building and how we build it. Um, it is that we are able to uh, establish 
a sort of firstly a shared uh, view of the state of the world. Um, so uh, hopefully mostly based on quite granular verified information um, as opposed to some big narratives and having to believe what the media says or what some politicians um, state. Uh, and uh, that we can then extract intelligence from that. And for us to be able to create that shared view of the world, we need to um, essentially have a shared ontology. Um, so the technologies to kind of get a little bit uh, kind of technical, uh, the technologies that we have within Web3 allow us to implement uh, things such as linked data, um, to have uh, standardized uh, schemas um, and to uh, to standardize the ways in which we we pass messages and we validate information and we store the information and so on. So all of that interoperability uh, is really really, really important. Um, and then on top of that, we need addressability. So this is where the human in the loop, humans in the loop um, uh, piece comes in in terms of that graph. So in the old internet or the, the legacy internet, you don't really have addressability of individuals. Uh, we can address uh, proxies of individuals uh, that are held by third parties, such as our Facebook profile, um, and we can address machines, so IP addresses, uh, but we can't really directly address an individual. With the uh, W3C, standards around decentralized identifiers, which, which we've been very, very involved in, 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 in uh, as part of the community developing, you're able to address individuals as nodes in the network in this graph. I mean, essentially when we're talking about a graph, we have, a, we have nodes and we have edges. And so if this graph is, is able to um, incorporate uh, us as, as agents, as nodes, then we become part of the addressability and part of the interoperability within, the, within that system. And this is why I think the humans in the loop um, potential for these technologies is so much greater than we've had before. Oh, I've just, uh, sorry, I've lost you. I think you're on mute. Sorry about that. Indeed, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well, let's talk about that a little bit because I think you're right that m maybe there's sort of this interesting uh, maturation in the um, crypto community from cypherpunk, sort of anonymous, hyper-libertarian. These tools are here to sort of like protect the individual, strictly speaking, to maybe more of a solar punk perspective. Um, which is, okay, we, we obviously need to protect individuals, but what we really need to do is coordinate socially because individuals are emergent from, from a cultural, social, collective context. They're not just an island. And so inter, inter in identity as a key foundational piece for Web3 social coordination that by necessity, these risk-adjusted augmented bonding curve um, systems that you're busy working on, they necessitate a, an identity solution, right? Um, um, in, in the application of a 
in the application of say um, a discrete group of people with a with a clear mechanism design around some particular social outcome there has to be sort of uh, some some sort of um, identity linked into that stateful graph um, of data and so I'd actually love to just uh, you know get your latest thinking on that where where ICSO is at with that. Um, I know there's multiple initiatives doing really great work in that space. And yeah, I'm just curious uh, just to hear you speak about that a little bit. Yeah, so, um, so there's, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of um, meta track of research that, that we're doing, which is, um, it's kind of the hard work that needs to be done to define what that graph looks like and um, to spec it all out. Uh, so you know we can uh, we operationalize pieces of of uh, technology right now, like the um, like J like JSON linked data for the linked data part of it, the verifiable credentials piece from W3C, the DIDs, and so on. So and and uh, uh, you know. Uh, DAG um, data structures from the from the from a blockchain perspective and um, yeah so we've got all these 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 pieces content addressability in terms of IPLD um, and so we can take all these pieces and we can operationalize them but I think we 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 do need to um, put it into a coherent definition of what the graph looks like and um, really in a way kind of design co-design that graph so that everybody is on the same page about it. And that graph then becomes the graph which is implemented in an internet. And we're referring to this internet as an internet of impact. It's a bit kind of markety, but um, it puts across the point that, uh, that this is not the old internet and this is not just blockchain technology. This is, this is a new information infrastructure that is distinct from the um, social web or um, finance web or uh, commercial web like, like Amazon in that you know, it's got some very specific protocols and specific uh, configurations and infrastructure uh, that are required for it to operate. And it has characteristics such as the statefulness uh, which make it really distinctive but also address the very real need to have a stateful internet in order to do sustainable development, because you need to be able to record the state of the world today and compare it with the state of the world next year and the year after and the year after, both to kind of assess the changes that are taking place, but also to incentivize future states and so on. Um, so there's that piece of work around really um, solidifying our uh, definitions and standards and so on of what the graph looks like. Um, then there's the piece which is Let's implement that graph on an infrastructure. And so uh, I think what would be interesting to the Cosmos community people here who understand the Cosmos SDK is that we've kind of repurposed the Cosmos SDK uh, to enable um, particularly uh, the requirements for us to store data relating to um, uh, this graph. And so data relating to identifiers, data, data relating to, um, to uh, claims. Um, and so um, in, the, in the EXO SDK, we've created an, um, 
we've 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 replaced some of the cryptography to uh, essentially drive everything with ED two five five one nine, and all accounts and all um, messages are directed via DIDs. So, um, so rather than transacting with your wallet address, you're transacting with your DID, um, which is a level of abstraction, but it allows for then some quite important characteristics around being able to authenticate and to be able to, to provide other information uh, in the form of credentials, which allow you to operate within a kind of more kind of um, rights-based approach within, the, within this um, network. Uh, so you can define you know, really quite sort of fine-grained uh, capabilities based on identifiers and their associated credentials. And in terms of, and, and this, you know, this has uh, a number of advantages, and it also has a number of disadvantages, I guess. Um, and some of the disadvantages, you know, maybe that we're we're moving away from, you know, pure anonymity to to some level of, of correlation, and, and in some cases, a very high level of identification for the for the kind of trust anchors in the system, but. Um, that is what's needed in the real world because in order to operate within compliant economies, compliant regulations, um, compliant financial transactions and so on, you, you really need to, 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 to have these things in place. And so we're able to, for instance, say that you need to have uh, you know, a KYC credential in order to invest in a bond. Um, and that is then implemented by the system Without needing to then you know have um, have some person going in and and authorizing uh, and whitelisting uh, the participants in a bond. So once you've got a credential, you can then use that uh, to operate through the whole network or through networks of networks. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think those are some of the kind of key things. And then everything in 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 this graph, you know, every node in this graph. Uh, has an identifier, and uh, most of those nodes have got associated uh, information in the form of a, a DID document, which is a, a part of the uh, W3C specification. Um, and in the DID document, you can have a bunch of meta information, which helps with identifying, authenticating, um, routing to endpoints, uh, so a whole bunch of like, really useful uh, um, information that enables these nodes to become operational nodes. They're not just, you know, data points. They're, they're actually they have they have capabilities, uh, and uh, you know our direction of travel in this is is towards you know the object capabilities model, and um, and I guess that kind of ties in with where things are going with the interblockchain communication protocol. Uh, and the work that Agoric has done um, and you know, the decades of work um, that Mark Miller has done on object capabilities, which is really about then the transference of uh, electronic rights. And so um, when it comes down to kind of then how does this translate into uh, capabilities for applications that are relevant to sustainable development, you can think about something like you know, um, a future state commitment to uh, reduce carbon emissions um, 
being linked to uh, current state uh, actions that are recorded in a way that resolves back to identifiable participants in that process, both for attribution and also for accountability. And in the process of doing those actions, making claims that can be verified, and uh, as a result, you can produce uh, tokens which can represent rights. And so those rights essentially become the rights to offset carbon, for instance, if it's a carbon token. Um, and so there you've kind of got a, a neat coupling between um, a number of different uh, processes that in the legacy systems are, are, very, are very kind of uh, disconnected. You know, you have different ledgers, different, different ways of, of credentialing organizations and, and um, moving information around and, and, and issuing carbon credits. And, you know, if we're talking about carbon credits, I'm just using that as one example. Uh, and this is, this is obviously something that Regen is a lot more um, uh, kind of focused on is the um, issuance of these, uh, of these certificates and so on. Um, but I think that the rights narrative around this is really, really important uh, because ultimately, you know, you, you, for sustainable development, uh, needs to define boundaries on, on rights. You know, do I have the right to pollute the water? Do I have the right to have clean water? And it's about balancing out those, those rights. Yeah, no, I love the rights framing. And I think it's, I think it's right on. And I think, and, and I think it's the um, appropriate phase shift out of the current, you know, very opaque and dysfunctional carbon market, for instance where having a, a rights model and a high quality sort of uh, graph of verified or verifiable data um, enables you, and this is, this is sort of right where region network is very focused, what, what that enables you to do on the natural capital side of things is move beyond concepts such as additionality, which are, I think, enormously detrimental to you know, for instance, yeah. additionality, and when it comes from natural capital, additionality is sort of like holding a forest hostage and saying, I would cut this forest down if you didn't pay me. And because I can prove that, now you can pay me. Um, versus the real important thing, which is, is the forest there? Is it produced? Is it functioning in an optimal way? Is it producing ecosystem services? And who has the rights to the variety of different ecoservices being produced so that people can interact, transact, and steward that landscape together? Which, is, which still has bridges into the market and still can be used for carbon accounting and it can still sort of like enter into the same sort of scheme but it's coming from a very different perspective. And uh, I'm, I'm very excited about the rights framing uh, in all of this. I think that's a, that's, that's a really important invitation for um, approaching the meaning, you know, the innovation around meaning here uh, that I'm really grateful for, um, that you've sort of been leading the way. So um, yeah, this, is, this has been fantastic. I think, um, well, so how close, how, where is Ixo right now with the, um, 
bonding curve work where um, I know it's I know it's approaching that that um, done whatever that means you know or sta stability in, in as a module um, wh where where are we at yeah so um, so we, we we received a grant from the interchange foundation um, based on the prototype that we built uh, I think it was in June last year so it's almost a, a year later um, at the hackathon and that original prototype was um, a, a universal bonding um, module and so you know that's built and um, will be part of um, a, the testnet that we um, a game I guess we also have to have a game um, uh, that, that will be uh, um, launching fairly soon uh, the the work on the alpha bond the risk adjusted bonding curves is really quite uh, detailed engineering research and and development and so um, it's uh, it's taken an enormous amount of, of work and the degree of diligence I must just call out to block science you know in terms of the engineering rigor uh, in requirements gathering and really really thinking through the design the configuration space and so on and, you know and how this is connecting together um, all, all various other uh, um, concepts within the whole sort of crypto economic engineering space you know is is, is really exciting uh, so where we are with that is in phase two of the project, which is coming close to having a CAD-CAD model with, with uh, the ability to do simulations around specific implementations um, of, of the mechanism. We, we then need to plug this set of algorithms into the module that we've built. Um, so there's been kind of a little bit of... Uh, uh, kind of w w waiting for this work to be done so that we can complete the uh, bonds module. Uh, uh, the alpha bonds are a lot more complex than you know than than all the other forms of bonding curves. You know, essentially, a bonding curve is an algorithmic um, you know price uh, and uh, supply uh, mechanism. So. You can use it for automated market making and you can use it for continuous fundraising, a whole, whole range of different applications. Um, but it's a static curve and it just gives you, um, uh, um, you know, kind of mint and burn prices on tokens that go in and out of that, out of that mechanism. So it's actually really relatively straightforward to, to, um, to implement. We've got um, the sort of anti-front running, so uh, batched bonding curve uh, mechanisms and so on. So we've tried to build it out with kind of the best of all of the um, current concepts around bonding curves for the generic bonding curves. And that's, that's available. So anybody can um, uh, parameterize a curve, run the curve, and that works. When it comes to risk-adjusted curves, is that, uh, curves is that on Ixos, is, is that on Ixos GitHub? Um, yes, it where? is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. So, and and we were, it would be fantastic. Look, there's a there's a there's a UI for it as well, which is quite integrated with the EXO uh, web client. Um, but it, that web client is also uh, open source. Um, and are you we're, going to be planning? Are you planning on open sourcing the Alpha Bond work, or is that for for a while yes. going to be sort of? That's amazing. I I I mean, I'm so appreciative yeah. of. 
um, I'm so appreciative of the Web3 community and all of the amazing, like such hard work. I mean, we're, we're doing this as well, where, um, and I'm quite keen again, you know, I think we had sort of a, a really exciting moment of coordination when we were all together in Berlin. I'm, I'm hopeful that we can achieve something like that again. So, I mean, just to just sort of an aside, but let us know if we can support the, the, um, your upcoming test net and, and other things taking place. And um, I think, I mean, yeah, wow. It's just such valuable hard work, these building blocks, these sort of fundamental building blocks of, of this internet of impact are, yeah, really important. Cool, well, I'm gonna I, have I, a look I, at I, the bonding module here. I'm excited. Yeah, and I, 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 hope, I hope that, look, it's still under very, very, um, regular developments and, up, and up, upgrading and so on. But we will be going into the test net with that and um, we'll implement something that I think is going to be um, interesting and more generic than, than just the, uh, not just, but then, then, the, then the impact um, sustainable development use case, which is that we will utilize the bonding curve um, to incentivize people to uh, identify and log issues with, with the um, test network. Uh, and so um, we will have a way that you can submit claims about having found a bug or claims about, uh, you know, improvements that you want to suggest on the UI or whatever aspects of, uh, of the experience that you're um, engaging with in terms of using and testing out the network. Um, and so this will be applicable to the blockchain engineer type, um, you know, software engineering type people as well as users who will in interface using the UI. And we would love to have all kinds of feedback and we were incentivizing that feedback um, through the uh, bonding curve mechanism. And so um, there will be um, a range of uh, um, interfaces through which you can submit your inputs and you can get rewarded for it um, if, uh, if those inputs turn out to be kind of uh, useful inputs. Um, uh, but a lot more about that later. So, uh, so um, hey, just a just a brief aside. Um, just a brief aside. While we're on the subject, have you been tracking the um, encoding work that's happening in the Cosmos SDK, um, shifting over to Protobuf? And are you aware of how that's going to impact? And like, how how are how is Ixo thinking about integrating with with that? I think it's quite going to be quite great for for UX, et cetera, but how are you, you know, how are you guys planning on kind of dealing with that migration? Yeah, we, we, we at this stage, we haven't planned on that um, because I, you know, I think the, um, yeah, the, 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 the challenge in the space is, is, is kind of chasing your tail. Um, yeah, totally. You know, so quick. <laughs> and um, we have, we have a, a fully, operational um well i mean fully as in mvp operational uh, stack and so we would really like to get that out and tested and um and used uh, and then and, and then in terms of like core upgrades you know put that into the pipeline and put and put um uh, the feature expansions and so on into the pipeline based on business requirements and technical requirements so an important part of those technical requirements i think is really um, doing the, the the hard work that needs to come over the next months um, on uh, defining that graph 
um, and the cryptography around the graph and the, the data structures and how we do link data and um, and um, yeah, so there's, I think there's, there's, there's a number of work streams or uh, you know, development pipelines. And right now we, we're, we're kind of picking and choosing what's, what's gonna get us um, into the market with a demonstrable um, product. Uh, I mean, we've had that since 2018. We, um, interestingly, we launched the Cosmos-based um, SDK-based network in December 2018. It's still running. I need to turn it, turn it off. <laughs> it's a centralized network. We have it running on seven AWS servers, but it's been running without a problem. I don't know how many millions of blocks we have. Um, and um, you know, that's a testament to even the old version of uh, the SDK actually still working away quite nicely. Um, so we've done a major upgrade on that. I think we're, I can't remember the exact version, but we are fairly up to date um, and we'll probably update um, the patches and things in the, in the, in the, in the, in the next month. Um, but uh, yeah, we just want to really get out into the market before we start doing any sort of major changes. But if there's any- Yeah, cool, understood. And if there's any advice on 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 not taking that approach, you know, there's um, yeah, we just kind of have to pick our battles, I guess. Um, but, well, but, I, I would say I would just you know I I would say let's try to make a call with um, Aaron work uh, at some point, oh, and or you know you you having you and and or others hopping into the there's a biweekly SDK call that Region Network is leading. Um, because we would value your needs and input um, as we're trying to steward and balance things kind of uh, on, on the SDK side of things. And I think I don't, you know, it's a trade-off that you have to make the call. I mean, I think what opens up in the shift from Amino to um, Protobuf is really exciting. And some of the fundamental, like, some of the reworking that's happening with the 0.39 release of the SDK is really exciting. And then having all of that, I think then, I think we're driving towards a, a much higher level of stability, like stability and usability. Um, so there may be a case for paying down the technical debt early instead of later, but, but usually it's probably better to just launch and get into an iterative. I mean, you know, it's anyway, that's a, that's a cost benefit and a, a complex yeah. dynamic one that you'll have, you guys will have to sort of make the call. But, but if you want to have those conversations, I think, you know, um, it's, it's important to just sort of bring those into the community because um, yeah, it's going to be a pretty big breaking upgrade. Although it is important to understand they, they did, they were very careful to make sure that the amino encoding still works. So you can actually do both. That's what's, 0.39 is going to have both capabilities. Right. So. Okay. Yep. Well, I'm um, happy to look into that. Um, uh, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's quite, it's quite a, you know, so yeah, the, the scope of what we have built and are continuing to build is really quite enormous and unrealistic for, um, or even just one network or organization to take on. And um, I, I would really like to see much more uh, collaboration across 
Uh, I mean, there, there is already good collaboration, but I'd like to see a lot more collaboration that is joined up across the um, purpose of these um, technologies. So, you know, there, there are applications and within those applications, innovations that are, are being made within the Cosmos community that are all relevant or should, at, or should be cognizant of um, sustainable development um, issues. And, and I think we, we could benefit from having a, um, a set of objectives that is kind of community-wide um, and that's a lot more explicit. I, I do think the Cosmos community um, as a whole t has tended to be a lot more conscious of um, governance and, uh, and ecology and uh, sustainability and so on. Um, but I think we can make that a lot more explicit. And so just kind of, I think that helps if we have a target that we're all kind of working towards. If it's a certain set of principles, for instance, you know, that can, that can really move things in the right direction. I agreed. And I still, you know, we had had some very exciting conversations about, you know, how to align incentives and do strategic partnership. And I think, you know, different things. Um, it, it's a complex set of questions but one that i think we need to put the time and attention to answer because i think uh, I, I do think having the like coordination between projects because we are all doing this very interesting thing of trying to connect with existing markets to to and real use cases and you you know user needs and we're also as an ecosystem doing some really important sort of like foundational research and development and that is not traditionally something that a, a startup in a singular way can do on its own startups need to just focus on getting to market and building a user base but we know you and I know and I think you know our listeners will be hearing the implicit sort of set of assumptions, which is the internet of impact or, or the internet of uh, value or the internet of rights or, or the internet of, um, the, or web three, however we sort of think about it, um, the, the, the cyber physical commons, the, the ability to um, transform our economic systems and our governance systems to be much more uh, humane and much more connected to ecological reality. Um, sort of demands these foundational building blocks. And they're, they're actually not, um, those foundational building blocks, you've lined them out in a logical way, um, by and large. There really aren't too many missing pieces. I mean, I think if we, if we had pretty much what you've, what you've talked about as a community, we would be well on our way, at least. And, um, you know, and, and they're all big pieces, right? They're all big, complex pieces that need to connect. And that's the beauty and strength, I think, of the Cosmos approach, right? Is that you can do the right modular sovereign design and, and work on interoperability. And I think, um, I think there's a very interesting governance and social coordination and uh, incentive alignment um, design challenge at the meta level you know how is our success your success and how is your success our success and how do we work as an ecosystem 
to fund and ensure the, the rollout of this research and development and empower the specific use cases and the users themselves, right? Just always sort of subsidiarity, just always pushing out the, the innovation and the rights to the appropriate set of users instead of trying to sort of claim that as the, the old economic model of how you um, capture value, essentially. Like we can't do it that way because otherwise it won't be built, essentially. <laughs> so it's, a, it's really yeah, a I think challenging. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that we we have spent and do spend a lot of time trying to prove our relevance to the mainstream economy because that's kind of where the where the where the dollars come from, um, and we face this uh, you know, moments in time opportunity that with the burning platform of what's currently happening to really shift that around uh, and. You know, in, in a way, I think so far it's been quite disappointing. So people point to, you know, bit, to Bitcoin, for instance, they say, oh, Bitcoin was supposed to be the hedge against um, or the alternative to the, uh, to the economy, um, economic failures of the, of the mainstream economy. Mm. And, you know, maybe that will still start. But it, it really hasn't been a narrative that has been so favorable for blockchain from the perspective of Bitcoin, and and I think I think that we have not yet at all started to really uh, claim a space and demonstrate a relevance um, for new economy, which is what we're all about uh, within the current context. Yeah. And so there, you know there is this window of opportunity, and I think we really should be a lot more um, joined up in in our narrative and our making it happen. Agreed. I mean, I'm all about it. I think, you know, and I think it, it's demanded of us, in fact. I mean, I would sort of argue that n none of us have found protocol market fit yet. And it may be another year or 18 months or two years until that happens. And I would, you know, and I think we're working on the same protocol, essentially. And so, and, and therefore, we need to sort of be thinking about but the, the, the sort of like larger standard system and, and driving innovation from, okay, great, and, but we're just going to innovate here because we have concrete users and concrete partners and concrete data and a concrete thing and here and here, but, but we need to sort of have this ebb and flow of, of working on the larger, um, this larger graph, this larger protocol, how it, how it works, how it's governed. Um, you know, and we had had some really fun conversations about you know, sort of like the meta sustainability hub um, it, approach. And I, I still think that that's uh, and multi multiple, you know, blockchains with multiple tokens um, staking them. And um, I think there's a lot of room for innovation here. I was just reading um, Asmodot from Kira's uh, blog about... Um, initial delegator offerings where a new zone mm. or new project um, just essentially um, delegators can assign their uh, block rewards and inflation from an existing proof of stake chain and, and, and they translate to the new tokens. So you're basically mining. You're basically just mining for this new zone without having to, you know, like, 
just give your money away. So there's like a continuous funding stream for small groups to, to like bootstrap and work on and, and those are getting staked on there. So anyway, there's, there's like multiple staking, there's, you know, pushing our inflation rewards. There's all these ways that I think build in a way that actually is much more similar to the way Bitcoin bootstrapped itself. Um, so it's not this giant ICO. There's not this giant sort of, you know, <laughs> all, all of a sudden there's $100 million or whatever in a Swiss foundation and then you're just doing things, but it's more like, okay, there's a group of people and to the degree that you're providing value, you're sort of getting some continuous funding and you, you have your bonding curve and you have multiple stakes. So I think there's a way that we can actually, you know, sort of eat our own dog food and design the system that integrates and creates the right funding streams and the right mechanisms and the right permissions for, for the developers to be engaging and cooperating. And, um, you know, I think this is the year, I think 2020 is the year to get that stuff done, basically. I don't think we can procrastinate it, essentially. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think, um, yeah, you and I have, you know, we, uh, and our teams, we've been, we've been in this um, development process for a long time relative to um you know most startups uh and we need to really start showing um the the, the fruits of that um and i think we can uh so yeah it's exciting um there's there's certainly no lack of opportunities you know in 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 the space in the in the world and uh I guess the thing that that makes me a bit hesitant is just is the enormity of the, the challenges and um, and that we really do need to so we really do need to work together to make it um, feasible to to um, take on some of these bigger um, opportunities because otherwise we just really are doing things things piecemeal. Um, but it will come. Yeah, I'm I'm optimistic. Well, for so so okay. I mean, yeah, like, agreed. There's definitely some hazards, um, and um, we're it's <laughs> it's an interesting space. Well, um, I, I kind of want to I want to move up w to another topic. I'm I'm really interested. Um, I know I, I read I, I read that um, Ixo um, partnered with Persistence um, Network. Um, excited to see I, I was both excited to see their approach to creating kind of a, a consortium proof of stake hybrid in a way you know um, for enterprise adoption I think that that's a good a really good move and I think um, I was excited I think it's a good fit for you know the way that Ixo is engineered as well so I'm, I'm very excited about that I'd love if you wanted to just comment a little bit about that I think that would be probably useful for the cosmos community of listeners yeah, so I mean, there's a there's a number of kind of um, dimensions to that, but I guess the one that's um, the one that's I think most interesting is so we're, so we're working with with um, with a large bank, for instance, and um, to do um, you know anything that's kind of bank compliance in terms of financial transactions 
uh, you need to have some enterprise um, capabilities uh, in terms of compliance and um, um, you know whether it's legal or um, um, uh, regulatory and so on. And so you know the focus of persistence is is to try to solve some of those those kind of more enterprisey um, kind of requirements. And so um, you know I think that this bridge across between um, the uh, crypto economy and and that um, traditional economy, you know, needs to, needs to be built. Uh, and uh, yeah. you know, whether whether that's to pull that economy across the bridge this way, or to some extent we have to go across the bridge that way, doesn't really matter. We we need to build those bridges. And so I think that's that's kind of interesting. Um, at the same time, you know, we we are also working with. Um, with with a big banking um, partner, so to to look at how to integrate banking APIs and kind uh, kind of uh, um, fiat transfers between bank accounts, bring them on uh, onto on-chain representations that can then feed into the uh, mechanisms like the like the alpha bonds. Um, so that's work that we're we're currently doing. You know, and as you get into the details of this, it's less about the technical implementation and it's much much more about compliance and you know, yeah. um, whether that's yeah financial services compliance or gdpr and you know all those all those things that you kind of get into yeah um, indeed i mean it's a whole um it's a it's a lot of work it's a lot of it's a lot of work to get all of that right um and and, and as you're saying it's very important because um you know we, we do need to move trillions of dollars of, you know, existing, you know, economic assets from, from the yeah. old economy into the new economy as, you know, as part of the process and get them deployed into impact bonds and get them, you know, um, operating on new impact markets and, uh, buying and selling and um, you know whether it's trading carbon or uh, doing biodiversity offsets or you know social impact bonds or what what have you and um, there is as you're saying there's no way to accomplish that in a purely in, in a in a pure crypto form there has to be an interface with the the, the compliance world of finance and um, yeah I hardly really agree so um, yeah, excited, and and it's fantastic that you you guys managed to make a, a good relationship with the bank, and kind of like, um, I, I think there's just sort of a story embedded here. I think for listeners around what's different between these, you know, sort of like so this sort of protocol, like the the pathway to protocol market fit, and how that plays out in a um, new economy crypto startup like ixo or like region network um where uh where we're sort of trying to create mutually beneficial partnership opportunities to do where the product is the innovation on the protocol so so there are like for yeah. instance your banking partner or whoever it might be what that's what i've noticed people who have succeeded in getting the this far along the path 
you know, we're, we're several years in, we're, you know, we're working hard, we're still innovating towards protocol market fit and maybe product market fit in small ways. And there's a distinction between those two, but they're complementary. But, but those projects that have managed to stick around this long have done so because there's a realization that the foundational building blocks of this new Web3 infrastructure um, have uh, there's there's sort of short-term need by a variety of actors to build those things and and to innovate um, in an open way and so to the degree that we've managed to find those partnerships to drive the R&D to build the protocol market fit so that the you know product market fit in many different ways can sort of like sit on top of that there's been success in in continuing moving and I think the people who tried to get it all right and just launch a you know like just launch the product and like you know it's going to go most of those projects have sort of fallen by the wayside essentially they've not they've not managed yeah venue. yeah so um i i'm, I'm gonna have to run like very shortly because i'm sorry because i've got a call with the with, with the block science team um okay no, we were. I know we were supposed to go on a little longer, but um, I think I've I've overbooked here. Um, just in response to that, you know, what I've come to appreciate is that you know, from the bank's perspective, you know, they can only feasibly run, you know, a small selection of software products, regardless of whether they're you know banking products, blockchain products, whatever. Um, and so, on the block blockchain side, other than the POCs and experimentation and just the kind of fun that they have with, you know, enterprise Ethereum and all the other various um, uh, blockchains, you know, on the blockchain side, they, they've all kind of backed Hyperledger for their internal blockchain, if I can put it that way, um, between, between banks. Um, and, you know, that decision then feeds through to a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, that they need to put in place to get all of the internal approvals and make sure that it gets hosted correctly and managed correctly and budgeted correctly and all of that. It's a software system. And so when it comes to selecting um, a uh, proof of stake blockchain that they can see as a feasible candidate as being the other blockchain that they run that enables them to tap into um, into into uh, you know blockchain networks, um, you know they 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 have to they, they either have to sit and wait and see what's going to be you know what's going to be the mo the winner at the front you know, at the front, um, or or they can start the path of of um, testing out a couple of candidates and um, so I'm pleased to say that actually the uh, this this very big leading bank um, has put their blockchain lab um, team. On to doing a full due diligence of Cosmos and Tendermint, um, not just for the XO use case, but to look at it as a potential candidate as their as the blockchain that they kind of um, back. Um, so uh, there's different kind of ways of creating Trojan horses for these technologies, and um, I guess if we were going there with um, a you know, financial transactional product application blockchain that was maybe going to be you know threatening their core business maybe they'd be less um, interested in uh, in this in this kind of open approach uh, but because we're offering something that's 
is not really within their current capabilities, um, they, they're very keen to look at it. And so I see it as a Trojan horse. Um, so we'll see where that, where that ends up. But so far, the experience has been really good. Yeah, fantastic. Good. Well, um, thanks so much for taking the time to hop on and um, sort of catch up. And I hope that uh, you have, um, yeah, a great evening and uh, stay healthy and uh, looking forward to staying in touch. Maybe we should circle around and have another follow up in the next uh, little bit so that we can, you know, kind of weave a little tighter and, and coordinate. Yeah. Sounds good. It was really great having this conversation and um, always wonderful to speak with people who kind of get it <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, and who have a, a like-minded intention to solve these problems and work together to do that. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks, Sean. All right. Bye-bye.